Well, it is a real pleasure and privilege to have Paul Miller speak for us tonight, as well as tomorrow, twice. Here's one thing I would say about Paul. I could tell you a lot because I've known him for a lot of years. But here's one thing I would say about Paul that I think you'll find to be true as you get to know him as well. Paul, Paul is what he says, all right? In other words, he lives what he preaches. He's not perfect, uh, but he's passionately pursuing a deep walk with Christ. You may say, well, how do you know that? Because I was his youth pastor when he was in the 11th grade. Watched him graduate from high school in Lithia Springs, Georgia. Then I watched him graduate from Georgia Tech. He's the one guy that made me curse. Did you know that? Remember that? In Georgia Tech's auditorium, I'm just singing that song, and all of a sudden I'm like, whoops, didn't know what I sang, but he'll tell you about that later. Thank you, Paul. Nothing like getting a foul mouth from a youth guy, right, you know? I watched him get married, did their wedding. Uh, his kids are born, and just I've kind of watched this man become a, a, a wonderful expositor of the word, a true follower of Christ, and he's lived out all these years um, what he preaches. And I can listen to a guy like that, can't you? Who uh, brings before you what he's learned and studied and sought the Lord about, but only after he said, hey, where does it fit in here first? And so, Paul, uh, we've heard you before. Man, you're a delight to our church, from family camp to our church services. Come break the bread for us, preach the word, and know that you are among folks who love you and are praying for you. Can we welcome Paul Miller to preach for us? Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Love you. <laughs> so there was a question in one of our songs. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Well, here's the answer. Nobody. Not even Tom Brady. <laughs> if you would, turn to Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy 34, I'm going to tell you, uh, First Family Church knows how to host a men's conference. And uh, man, what a privilege to come back on year number two. And we've got some guys here from Sheraton who uh, can't be here tomorrow, but they drove up tonight. And man, we already gave God glory for Brother Tom and the prime rib. I, I, I almost want to give God another clap offering just for the cows that made those prime ribs possible. I mean, they were just amazing. I want to look at um, Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. The Bible says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Matt Emmons was one trigger pull away from winning his second gold medal at the 2004 Olympics. He was in the lead position of the, uh, of the uh, 50, 50 meter three position rifle competition and Emmons was so far ahead that his last bullet only had to hit the target anywhere. With unwavering calm and unbelievable precision, he fired his bullet and watched it pierce yet another 
bullseye. After a few seconds passed, no light score uh, appeared on the scoreboard. A few seconds later, three red-jacketed officials approached Emmons. He was sure they were going to tell him that the scoreboard was broken. Instead, they informed him that while standing in lane number two, he had shot target number three. He received a zero for that round and did not even place in the competition. The Washington Post reported the next morning, Matt Emmons was just focused on staying calm. He wishes he had been more concerned with where he was shooting. Emmons, quoted in the Washington Post, said this, On that shot, I was just worrying about calming myself down and just breaking a good shot. And so I didn't even look at the number. Emmons 23 said, I probably should have and I will from now on. I want us to talk this weekend about hitting the mark. Tactical precision for making generational impact. Guys, I want to tell you. The question on the table this weekend is not, will I leave a mark? That is not on the table. You will leave a mark. The question on the table is this. Will you hit the mark for generational impact? The right target. Miss Brandy and I have five children. Here's a picture of our family. Um, that's Sarah Beth sitting there. She's um, between us. She's six years old. And then John David on the left. He's sitting over here tonight. He's 12. I think you told me you're going to be 13 this year. We was, we was talking about it on the way up. Laura Leanne is 19. Paul Robert is sitting over here. He's 17 and almost 18. And then uh, Daniel Luke is 10. Does that sound right? See, you get over about three kids. It's like hard to keep track of everybody. And then my mom, grandmommy, she lives with us, so really kind of like having six children. But don't tell her I said that. Psalm 127, um, the Bible calls these children that God has given us arrows and a quiver. So I'm just kind of wanting to get a feel for who we got here. How many of you, you still have arrows in the quiver? Okay. So we, we do. We've still got four in the quiver. We, we just this year have launched one. How many of you have already launched some arrows? Okay, the other half of the room. How many of you have got like a 16 to 19 year old, the arrow is knocked, and I, I mean, you're just, like, you've already pulled back. Is anybody there? Yeah, okay. I hear you. I hear you. And so I want to make this statement. I really tried to craft it properly. A man's greatest opportunity to hit the mark is found in his influence on the next generation. I'm going to say it again. A man's greatest opportunity to hit the mark is found in his influence on the next generation. And I tried to craft that so carefully because I understand everybody... 
Every one of our kids is going to make their own choices, aren't they? They're going to make their own decisions. But there's this, there's this biblical pattern. It's really a biblical mandate that one generation is responsible for the next. One of my favorite verses, it kind of was the, um, kind of the heartbeat of a ministry down in Georgia that we did for like 11 years straight. It was an all-guys retreat called Guys with Guts for Teenage Boys. And so we've kind of rebranded that, and we've, the, the vision's been uh, pitched over now, and Andy Rich leads our all-guys retreat now. It's called Verge, but um, here's the verse. Paul said in, to Timothy, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations right there. Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. Faithful men who will teach others also. Warren Wearsby. Many of you have probably read some of his common commentaries. Warren Wearsby said this. Each local church is just one generation short of extinction. And unless we teach and train new leaders, we jeopardize the futures of our homes, churches, and nation. And so I want to preach tonight on this subject. One generation from gone. So, Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, is our text, but we need to set the context. In verse number 5, you can look at it, a major event has just happened in the life of God's people. Verse number 5 says, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. So most of you may know this, but Moses is the guy who has led the nation of Israel for 40 years out of Egypt across the Red Sea and through the desert and and through enemy territory and through the storms and the valleys and the mountains and times of great discouragement and times of celebration. Moses is dead. I was not alive when JFK was assassinated. I believe it was 1963. Does anybody maybe even remember that, possibly? Okay. Um, I was alive on June the 5th, 2004, when Ronald Reagan died. After a 10-year battle with Alzheimer's. And um, I got to tell you, I will never forget the emotion. I, I grieved that day. I, I didn't know Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan didn't know me, but I had a great deal of respect for Ronald Reagan. Just a man, not a perfect man. Um, he wasn't our leader when he died. He had not been our leader. He'd been out of office 15 years. He only led our nation for eight years as our president. But in my mind, he was a good leader. And, and when he died for 21 hours straight... 5,000 people per hour went by his casket. Well over 100,000 people. It was the largest funeral in the U.S. history since the death of JFK. Now can you imagine the sense of personal and national anxiety that must have gripped a nation who lost their leader not after... Eight years, but after 40 years 
A man not in the White House, but a man who knew the Lord face to face and talked with the Lord like a man talks with his friend. So Deuteronomy 34.9 is a, it's a very, very important verse because it represents a historically significant event. It's the changing of the guard. It, it's the handoff of the mantle of leadership. And so I, I want to remind you tonight that this handing off of the mantle of leadership is not a bygone reality that's relegated to the Old Testament, but rather with every passing year, Giants of the faith, leaders in our churches, they're passing off the scene. And they're, they're passing the mantle to the next generation. I, I, I've got a few pictures here. Maybe you can show this first guy. Some of you might recognize him. Does anybody maybe recognize him? Known as old Golden Throat. His name's Adrian Rogers. Maybe you've heard some of his uh, preaching on the radio. Um... Adrian Rogers died in 2005. His race is over. He's passed the mantle. I think about this next guy. See if you recognize him. How many of you would recognize him? Jerry Falwell? You know, maybe you, maybe you didn't agree with everything he said or everything he did, but Jerry Falwell was a man of great conviction. He was a... A man who was unwilling to compromise morality for the sake of popularity. Founded uh, Thomas Road Baptist Church and Liberty University, which is the largest Christian university in the world. Uh, how about this next guy? By the way, he died in 2007. Does anybody recognize this guy? His name's Bill Bright. Campus Crusade for Christ. Bill Bright died in 2003. See if you recognize this next guy. Anybody recognize him? He died six weeks ago. His name's R.C. Sproul. He was 78 years old. I think about other guys like this one. Does anybody know him? His name's David Jeremiah. You hear him on the radio. David Jeremiah, 76 years old. How about this guy? Maybe you've seen him or heard him. Jerry Vines, evangelist, former pastor, First Baptist of Jacksonville. Jerry Vines is 80 years old. Maybe this guy, do you recognize this next one? Yeah, James Dobson. James Dobson's 81. How about this guy? Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley led my dad to the Lord when he, was in, when he was a teenager. Charles Stanley's 85 years old. See if you know this next guy. Anybody know him? Yeah, that's Grandpa Tom. He's one of my mentors. He's very dear to me, Tom Nesbitt. Tom Nesbitt's 80 years old. My brother is a pastor down in uh, Cobb County, Georgia, in metro Atlanta, First Baptist of Mableton, Georgia. He sent me this text a couple of weeks ago. He says, I'm writing a paper. He's working on his second PhD. I don't know what's wrong with him. He says, I'm writing this paper on Jerry Vines and the conservative resurgence, and here are my thoughts. We owe a huge debt of thanks to men like Paige Patterson, Adrian Rogers, 
Jerry Vines, and Charles Stanley. Others too, but those four refused to be moved from the truthfulness and the inerrancy of the Bible. You know what Moses told Joshua? These are not just idle words for you. This is your life. Clint, my brother, said, I wonder if a generation has been raised up that doesn't appreciate the fight or the outcome of the fight. So now, instead of the Bible and the gospel, lesser issues have taken captive their attention. We're the men of character, of gravitas and seriousness about the Bible and proclaiming it today. Who are they? Who will they be? And I replied to my brother, I said, Amen. I want to raise my sons to be those men. My dad was 56 years old when he died. Brandy, my wife's dad, was 65 when he died. And so if I take the older of the two, and I just say, I'm going to get 65 years. Then here's what that means, guys. I'm in the bottom of the seventh inning. Look at me. I don't look like that, do I? I I look like I'm in the bottom of the second, right, or something? Tell me that. I'm in the bottom of the seventh. Isn't that the seventh inning stretch? When is that? Good night. I, uh, there's a verse, in, and you guys know it, in James 4, verse 14. And it just talks about don't talk about tomorrow. And he says, what is your life? Your life is just a little mist. I mean, I don't know if you guys can see that. Did you see that? Brent, can y'all see it? Can you still see it? No, it's gone. Watch this. That's Todd Styles. Where it's gone. He's gone. That's David Farnsworth right there. He's gone. It's Chris Eller right there. Chris, you lasted a little longer than Todd did. <laughs> just, a, just a little vapor. Exists for a little while and then it, it vanishes. So I want you to write this down. Passing the mantle of leadership is inevitable. I mean, this isn't just some Old Testament experience. We're, we're talking about the fact that if the Lord tarries, my generation, your generation is going to slide over and another generation is going to take the wheel. Now, in order to unpack this one verse, we're going to do a little move in here. I want you to hold a finger there, but go to Numbers 27. Can you do that for me? Numbers 27. Just while you're turning, I want to remind you that the word Deuteronomy means second law. And so, 
it's not that there's another law, but it's a second telling. It's a retelling of the, of the events of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And so we're, we're kind of we're looking at the same storyline in the first telling when we look at Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So we're in Numbers 27, and I want to look at verse 12. The Bible says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up to this mountain of Abarim and see the land which I have given to the sons of Israel. Verse 13. When you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to treat me as holy before their eyes at the water. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. All right, so guys, Moses, God tells Moses, okay, look, I'm going to give you the opportunity to see the land, but I'm sticking to my guns, Moses. You're not going in. I'll let you see it, but you dishonored me in the desert. There's consequences. You're not going in. Your race is over. Now, I don't know what you would have said in that moment. I know what I'd have said. I'd have been like, God, are you seriously going to do me that way? I mean, for crying out loud, I put up with two million crying whiny crybabies for 40 years. And you, how about, I mean, I know this is Old Testament, God, but how about a little grace? (laughs) Seriously, I'm not going to get to go in? I thought you would have changed your mind. I'd have been like, my one of my kids has actually done this. You can't have that last cookie. You know what he did? He licked it and then put it back down. Like, if I can't have it, can't nobody have it. I mean, I'd have probably been like that if I'm Moses. But I want you to look at verse 15. Look what Moses says. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, verse 16, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Man, that's amazing to me that that would be what, what Moses would be thinking about. And so somewhere along the way, guys, Moses has learned, hey, it's not all about me. Somewhere along the way, Moses has learned that the plan of God, God's redemptive plan, His sovereign plan from the foundation of the world is a little bit bigger than what one man can do in a lifetime. And so so Moses knew this day's coming when he's going to pass off the scene. And his only prayer, his one concern is that there will be a man to come behind him that's capable of leading the flock of God. So I I wrote this down. Maybe you can write it down. Passing the mantle of leadership is immeasurably important. I mean, this is like the one final plea of Moses. God, appoint a man who will go out and come in 
who will lead them out and bring them in. And so, verse 17, it's got these phrases that intrigue me. Appoint a man who will go out and come in before them. And then there's this phrase that I I think I understand better. Who will lead them out and bring them in. Honestly, the second phrase, I, I get it right away, that's shepherd language. I mean, that's a shepherd that's leading the flock out to find green pasture and find quick living water and bring them back into the fold. I mean, I get that phrase, but there's another phrase here. Who will go out and come in before them. And I want us to look at that phrase. So we need to move again. I want to go to, maybe you can try to mark mark Numbers 27, but I want to go to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, we're looking at the life of a man named Moses who hit the mark for the next generation. Exodus 33. In verse 7 it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak With Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, before the construction of the tabernacle, God provided this place. Outside the camp. And, and this is kind of a side note. It's very important. This tent of meeting was outside the camp. Symbolizing that sin has separated man from God. But the tabernacle, which will be- later become the temple, was inside the camp. And guys, don't forget this. Everything in the temple, in the tabernacle, foreshadowed Christ. The ultimate sacrifice that allows the very presence of God to dwell inside the camp of our lives. But outside the camp, pre-tabernacle, there's this tent of meeting and people would go out and seek the Lord. But everybody knew when Moses went out, the glory of God's coming. And God's going to talk to Moses like you would talk to your friend and And the people would stand and they would worship because they knew Moses is in the presence of God. Now, I want you to think back to Numbers 27, 17. 
Moses cries out, Lord, appoint a man, listen, who will go out before them and come in before them. And then he says, will lead them out and bring them in. Look, guys, Moses knew that before anybody can lead people out and back in, they first got to go themselves and meet with the Lord. And I want to say to you, if you and I want to be serious about discipling those coming behind us, it's going to begin with our own personal pursuit of God. And some of you guys tonight, honestly, the greatest thing you can do for the next generation is not think about the next generation tonight, but it's think about your own personal pursuit of God. And I wrote this down. Before we can lead, man, we got to learn to follow. Before we can make disciples, we need to think about being a disciple. What's a disciple? A learner. That's what the word means, learner. Now, if you look back at Exodus 33, where we were just reading, look at verse 11. Let's finish that verse. When Moses returned to the camp... His servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Man, don't miss that. There's somebody else in the tent with Moses. Who is it? It's Joshua. Man, Joshua's in there and he's watching and he's listening and he's learning from the example of the generation going before him and from the life of Moses. And here's, here's my biggest fear. My biggest fear for my kids, one of the biggest fears, because I saw this happen as a youth pastor to one of the students in my youth group. My biggest fear is that one of my kids, and I got two that are out driving, is that one of my kids is going to be texting and driving, and they're going to kill somebody. I'm just being honest. That's that's something I think about a lot, because it happens all the time. And I don't know how I got two kids here tonight. I'm not sure how they were going to take this next statement. But I almost think, I almost think there's a part of me that would rather lose them than watch them live knowing they had done that. Are you with me? And maybe some of your kids have been through something like that or you have and we know God's grace is enough. I'm not trying to say that it's not. I'm just telling you it's a fear that I have that I think about a lot. But guys, let me ask you something. How much credibility and authority do I have to speak into their lives and say, guys, whatever you do, don't text and drive if I go down the road texting and driving. Well, Dad, you do. Now, I I meant to bum a cigarette tonight, and I, I forgot, but so I'll just use this. But seriously... Paul Robert, man, whatever you do, son, don't smoke cigarettes. It's dumb. It's stupid. It won't send you to hell, but it'll make you smell like you've been there. (laughs) Smoking's dumb. Now, John David, son, let me tell you something. I don't want to catch you, son, I don't want to catch you smoking no cigarettes. 
Are you with me? I mean, seriously. Now, you know, I'm being being extreme here, but guys, let, let me ask you this. How meaningful is it when we tell our kids about the importance of daily time with the Lord and His Word when we don't have any? And why can I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to be real with you. Why are we shocked when young adults leave the church in their early 20s when, for years, they've been following a generation that has reduced Christianity to one hour and a $20 bill on Sunday morning? And so... You know why Joshua's in that tent? Because he's learned from Moses the value of seeking the Lord. And Joshua knew the only reason Moses is able to lead them out and bring them in is because first he went out before them. And he came back in himself. Where are the baby boomers? 1946 to 1964. Raise your hand, boomers. Man, guys, that's awesome. There's all the baby boomers right there. Now, let me ask you something. Baby boomers. How many of you think the next generation, that's me, I'm Generation X. How many of you think the next generation should be connected to a small group of believers for the purpose of accountability and encouragement? Raise your hand. Baby boomers, you think there's value in a commitment to a small group. Hold them up, boomers, if you believe that. Now, let me put your hands down. Let me ask you this. Will my generation go if they follow you? Where's my generation? Generation X, raise your hand. 1965 uh, to 79. I'm 71, I'm just going to tell you. Proud of it. All right, Generation X. How many of you think, and you can raise your hand, how many of you think the millennials should have a burden for the nations? Generation X. How many of you think the millennials should be so burdened for the nations that they actually... Get on planes and use their vacations to go with the gospel to the hard places in the world. How many of you think millennials ought to do that? Pastor, I know where you're going now. I don't want to, matter of fact, I'm just leaving. Will they go if they follow us? Millennials, are, you, are there any of y'all in here 1980 to 2000? Yeah, praise God for y'all. All right, so how many of you think Generation Z, that's the I generation, right? How many of the millennials think Generation Z should avoid the trap of loving money? And you really think the next generation, John David and his generation, he's almost 13, you think... That his generation 
I ought to be so in love with Jesus that giving money is a form of worship out of an attitude of the heart that says, God, nothing's mine. I'm just a steward. It's all yours. And so the question is not, good night, have I got to give 10%. The question is, Lord, what would you have me give? And you're like, millennials, you're like, yeah, I, I kind of think that's what I, I think Generation Z ought to do that. Raise your hand, you think that way. Well, they give like that if they follow you. Now, some of you guys are like, hey, I, I, I didn't come up. I mean, I, I came for the prime rib, not the guilt check, not the guilt trip. Hey, guys, this ain't no guilt trip. This is a reality trip. We need to wake up. There are young men in the tent with us. No matter what generation you are. They're coming along behind us, guys. Numbers 27. I hope you maybe still got your finger there, but I want to look at verse 18. And so again, this is... This is kind of the first telling of what we read over in Deuteronomy 34, verse 18. Numbers 27, 18 says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Man, God had chosen a man that had been prepared to lead, and God chose Joshua. But listen, God chose a man that had been discipled. And what an incredible blessing and an emotional experience that must have been for Moses that God would give him the privilege to see the promised land. And then God would say, now I'm going to give you the privilege to put your hands on the very man that you've been investing in all these years. Now let's ask a question right now. What if you're Moses? And God says, time's up. I'm bringing you home. But I'm going to give you the privilege, sir, of entrusting the future of your family to what you've already had your hands on all this time. What have your hands been on? Well, Pastor, I, really, my hand's been on the stock market. Well, I guess, honestly, my small business. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to entrust our family and future generations to what we've had our hands on. We're going we're to entrust them to financial security. We're going to entrust them to Wall Street. We're going to entrust them to shooting a 60 on the golf course. I don't know anything about golf. Did that even make sense? <laughs> golf club's taller than I am. I can't play that game. Z generation. A couple of y'all in here, I think. You're born after 2000. 
What are you going to do with your high school years? What are you going to do with your junior high school years? I got my hands on the Xbox, baby. No, I got my hands on the PlayStation. I got my hands on the DS. Hey, there's people in the tent with y'all too. And then we could just simply ask the silent generation, those over 72, do you really want to be the silent generation? And so, I, with the rest of our time, I, I, I want, I mean, you could do, Brother Todd, we could do a two-year series on Moses investing in Joshua. But I want to show you two things that I think were priority for Moses as he prepared Joshua. Turn to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. You know this passage, a lot of you do. Moses told Joshua, Hey, go get some men. We've got to fight the Amalekites. Exodus 17 is the first mention in the Bible of Joshua. You remember, some of you remember this story. The Amalekites came behind, came snuck up behind the Israelites and attacked them from behind. That's a cheap shot. Man, you don't hit a dude from behind. Because you got your weak and your sick and your feeble and your stragglers coming in behind. They killed all them. That's a low blow. Amalekites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother. Hebrews 12, 16 says Esau was a godless, immoral person. Guys, Esau lived for the world and he, and he lived according to the cravings of his flesh. And he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And I, I told, I've told my oldest daughter, and I'm beginning to talk to my little girl who's six, hey, whatever you do, don't marry a gut pleaser. And that's what I call these kind of guys that live to gratify their flesh. And Esau was a gut, gut pleaser. And by the way, I, I, before we look at this battle with the Amalekites, I want to call your attention to something. Do you know there's no written evidence that the Israelites ever had to fight one battle in Egypt? Not one battle in Egypt. But when they are actually set free, guys, that's when the battle began. And it's kind of the oxymoron of the Christian life that God says, hey, I'm going to give you the kingdom. Now go fight the spiritual battle. Like, what? But that's exactly, and here's why. It's because we're in the already not yet kingdom, aren't we? The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is pressing in. But it's not yet consummated. And there's three enemies, aren't there? There's our flesh, and there's the world, and there's the devil. And so the Amalekites, the descendants of Esau, they, they really represent this battle that you and I are in every day. And so you know the story. As long as Moses holds his hands up and holds the rod up, then, then Joshua and his men prevail. 
But as soon as he lowers his hand, Amalek prevails. So look at uh, Exodus 17, 12. But Moses' hands were heavy, and then they took a stone, and they put it under him, and he sat on it, and and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Verse 13. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now that word overwhelmed, uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word prostrated. Okay, that, That's a word that means... I'm laying down on my face begging you, if you haven't already, not to cut my head off. That's the picture. And so, Joshua and his men have soundly defeated Amalek. Now, guys, I don't know how you feel after a commanding victory. But I feel good. Man, I, I was... There was one guy in high school I could not beat arm wrestling. His name was Glenn Miller. Just something about the Miller boys, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. We weren't related. But me and Glenn, we, we stalemated every time. But I, I could put somebody down. I could put everybody else down. And I just those short little arms. I mean, you know. Poor, those poor guys with long arms. I'm just like, boom! What you gonna do? But I felt so good, man. And that's just the way we are. I mean, we're wired to win. Don't, are you wired like that? Like, I will, I will die for a ball. I will, I will stick my head under the fence trying to get that ball and catch that ball. I mean, it's just the way I play. I play hard. I got to go get my shoulder fixed here in a few weeks anyway. But we're like, I mean, God put that in us, didn't he? He said... In Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. You know what that word subdue is? Dominate. That's the way we're wired, man. I want to dominate. When, uh, this, is, this is before my time, December 7th, 1970. Oscar Bonavena, boxing legend from Argentina. He'd only been beat one time in 54 matches. He stepped into the ring in Madison Square Garden with a 212-pound American from Louisville, Kentucky, named Muhammad Ali. Ali had predicted a ninth-round ninth knockout, and he tagged Bonavena on cue. But when he moved in for the finish, Bonavena threw a desperate left hook that shook Ali. Ali said, I was numb all over. By the 15th round, with both men exhausted, Ali threw a left hook and he knocked Bonavena down. He dropped him two more times for the KO. And when Ali left the ring, he was shouting four words. I want Joe Frazier. Those were his words. So I'm thinking if I'm Joshua, and I'm coming up out of the valley... Here's what I'm saying. Who wants a piece of me? I'm thinking, I want some Hittites. Bring on some Gergeshites, baby. I mean, that's just what I'm, I'm thinking. I, I mean, if I'm Joshua, 
But look at verse 14, Exodus 17. (laughs) The Lord speaks. And the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book. By the way, first evidence we have of something being written down in the Bible. Write this in a book as a memorial. And you need to tell Joshua. (laughs) Recite it to Joshua that I, you might want to circle that pronoun. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 15. See, Moses got it. He, He knew what was going on. Moses built an altar and named it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek. Listen guys, from generation to generation. Hey, Moses is reminding Joshua, Hey, Bubba, you did not bring that victory. You won for one reason. You were fighting under the banner of the Lord God Almighty. And that's why you won that battle. And you went just like the soldiers would go under the flag bearing the insignia of their country. And they're fighting under that banner. Joshua was down there fighting under the Lord's banner. And under His name and His authority and His strength. And so the altar was not named Joshua Nisi. Joshua is my banner. No, no, no. Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah is my banner. And so write this down. I think Moses helped Joshua get the right vision of man. And guys, I'm going to be honest. And, and, and Todd and Brett taught on this last week in, in a breakout session at our church. But I really think the key word, like if you want to begin, if you want to begin thinking about making the right mark for future generations, I think you start with the word humility. Or or the word surrender. Guys, we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves to beat the Amalekites. To beat our flesh, to beat the world, to beat the devil. We don't have in and of ourselves what it takes to win spiritual battles. And I want, to, I want to make sure you caught this. The other thing is, Moses, God says, you need to tell Joshua the battle with Amalek is not over. It's not over. You can't just let your guard down. And I'm just going to tell you, some of, some of my battles, I battle depression. I battle negativity. I battle pride, and I battle a bad temper and self-control. Most of that manifests itself at home most clearly for the people that I love the most to see. And God says, tell Joshua 
that my people are going to actually have to rely on me to battle Amalek for generations. And I I probably should have warned him, but I've got a, a son right here that I love dearly. He's a great man of God. He comes in my office with me and one of our elders every Sunday morning, and we spend 20 minutes in prayer together. He battles his temper. I gave him that. I passed that on to him. Guys, he's in the tent with me. And so, man, I'm beginning to realize, man, I, can't, I cannot control my tongue. I cannot rein this temper, this tendency to pitch a fit. I can't rein it in on my own. But I've got to, for the sake of my son and his children, I've got to surrender this thing and let the Lord do this in my life. You okay, Bubba? All right. Should have given him a heads up on that one, but he's a good man. He's all right. Maybe for you it's alcohol. Maybe for you it's food. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to have victory when you finally surrender and you call out to Jehovah Nisi to be your banner. Maybe it's pornography. Do you know that statistically speaking... It is nearly, I'm not going to say impossible because that wouldn't be appropriate, nearly impossible that there's not a man in this room addicted to pornography. I mean, that's just statistically speaking. And I'm going to tell you, sir, you're not going to beat it in your own strength. You need the God of angel armies. And so I'm going to tell you, Moses is trying to help Joshua... Get a proper view of himself. Maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's greed. I I don't know what it might be, but I want to tell you this. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but men, victory belongs to the Lord. Real quick, when I was a youth pastor down in Georgia, about... 10, 11, 12 years ago, I, I did my own summer camp every summer, and there was this, uh, this one summer, took a big group down South Georgia to a camp, Baptist camp down there. And there was this kid, he was mildly uh, impaired. I mean, he was just high-functioning, but just slow, a little bit slow. He was 18 years old, but he probably acted more like about a 14-year-old, probably. There was a 13-year-old girl in the youth group in the junior high, and she and him had done, they, they were an item. They were going out, whatever they called it, going together. And her parents knew about it. I knew, I knew they knew about this dating relationship. And, then, and so, of course, I had tons of leaders and, you know, we had a good plan. But there was this, and I, I, I gave very little free time, but there was some little bit of time in transition, and, and, and he was in the gym, and she came in, a bunch of other kids in there, no adults in that moment. She runs in, she sits on his lap, and she kisses him on the cheek. From what all evidence we can tell, that's what happened. 
We get home from camp. She tells her father that this 18-year-old kid kissed her at camp. And before I know it, they're attacking me on Facebook. Don't you love Facebook? About the, about the molestation that occurred at camp. The sex offender. I mean, just everything you could think of. And it's, all, and, it's, and it's all over our community. They go to the sheriff's department. They press charges on me. And this thing, and so they hire an investigator. The sheriff's department puts an investigator on it. This guy named Earl that we knew in our community. And he begins an investigation. And this thing drags on for weeks. And it's all over Facebook. And they won't, the parents won't stop. And we asked them to please just stop. And I'm going to tell you guys, it got to where I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And I just, I, I guess in my mind, I just was beginning to... To believe my ministry was over. And uh, man, it got so bad that uh, I couldn't preach, I couldn't study. I mean, it just, it just consumed me. And so one day I went down to our little hunting camp where I deer hunted in Monticello, Georgia, which was just 15, 20 minutes from our church. And I, and I sat on the front porch, that little, little deer cabin. And I said, Lord, you, you have got to take this. I am dying. I said, if, if you know, it's, it's, I'm giving it to you. I mean, I know you already had it, but I, I'm giving it to you. And if in whatever happens, I'm trusting you. And guys, I'm, I'm, if I'm lying to you, I'm dying. I went back to the church. I had a message at church to call the investigator. I called Earl. He was a Christian. I said, Brother Earl, what's going on? He said, Pastor Paul, Brother Paul, I have finished my investigation. There is no case. It's over. And I, and I began, I fell on my face. I went to the altar and I said, Lord, thank you for fighting for me. Thank you, God, for the timing of this. That right after I said, Lord, I can't do it. I give it to you. You brought the victory. And guys... I'm telling you tonight, some of you, if you'll fall on your face and you'll say, Lord, I can't do it. I'm giving it to you, brother. He will bring victory in your life. And the last thing, real quick, is Exodus 24. Write this down, though, before you go there. Victory comes from the Lord. When you get the right vision of man, you can see victory comes from the Lord. Exodus 24. And I want to pick up in verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you, and whoever has a legal matter, 
let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know if you missed it or not, but I want you to look at verse 13. So Moses arose with Joshua and went up to the mountain of God. Now, why did Moses take Joshua? I mean, we don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic how far Joshua went. But listen, why did Moses take Joshua at least up to the mountain? I mean, he could have said, Hey, Joshua, won't you stay back here with Aaron and her? And that way you can learn some church polity and you can kind of learn how to handle these legal matters. Why did... Why did he bring him with him? Let me tell you why. It's because Moses is helping Joshua get the right vision of God. Get the right vision of God. Guys, the greatest thing that you and I can pass along to the next generation is awe and wonder over the glory of God. I probably should have talked to Andy before I said this too. But these guys love me. They'll forgive me. Andy, is, uh, he, he's one of our shepherds in our junior high ministry and um, leads in our men's ministry. And his wife, Miss D, is our children's ministry director. And she just about less than a year ago, I guess, finished a two-year bout with, with breast cancer. And two, was it two days ago or yesterday that you guys, we came over? Wednesday night, Miss D found another lump. And she texted our staff yesterday morning. And she told us about it. That um, she was going to have to go get it checked out. And the kind of cancer she had was not really, was an aggressive kind. It wasn't a good kind to have. And so we all, our staff, we dropped what we were doing. And we went over there to Andy and Dee's house. We all gathered around Miss D and Brother Andy and we, and we prayed one at a time. And we prayed for God to heal Miss D and we knew he could do it. And, and then toward the end, Andy prayed. And as long as I live, I'll never forget this. Andy prayed this prayer. Lord, do whatever you want to do to get glory. In our lives. That's what he prayed. 
Sitting right here to Andy's right is a young man in the tent with him, his son. The greatest thing we can ever pass along to the next generation is a perspective, is a view of the glory of God. I'll tell you why. I took my oldest daughter with me last time I went to Africa. It's because I wanted her to worship in a mud hut with no guitars and no lights and no sound system and no microphones with men and women singing out with their voices overwhelmed with the glory of God. I'll tell you why I took my oldest son to Haiti with me the day after Christmas this year, this past year. It's because I wanted him to see, which for me, it was the dirtiest, darkest, most depraved place I'd ever been. But I wanted him to see that church singing to the top of their lungs Men and women who had come out of tent cities. They'd been living in tents and little plywood shacks. A fourth the size of this stage since the earthquake. And they came out of those little muddy tent cities. And they're crying out, singing at the top of their lungs. Pagantankusinya. There's nobody like you, Lord. My brother Clint texted me a few months back. This is what he said. The generational gap in church is almost untraversable. I'm not sure if that's a word, he says. But the selfishness of people makes style and personal preference more important than honestly magnifying God's glory. And then he said, let's go start a church. To which I replied, the local body is always one generation from gone. To which he replied, yep. I think the total inflexibility of the older generation to change or even tolerate a different style is telling as to why that generation's kids our age have walked away from church. Now, as a result, our generation's kids are the generation that knows not Joseph and are completely out of control. And so, this weekend, men... Here's my prayer. My prayer is that there will be a group of men in Ankeny, Iowa and all over Iowa who will stand up and say, Hey, it ain't about me. And the generation gap is not untraversable. But I will put my hands on the next generation. So when I was at Georgia Tech, my grandparents, my mom's parents lived in Atlanta just 
like a few blocks from Georgia Tech, and I lived with them for several quarters back this back in the days of quarters instead of semesters. And um, my granddaddy was in his seventies, and and this is the way he walked. I'm not kidding. This is the way he walked, and. You know, they, they let me live there for free, and they would feed me, and oh, glory, so good. And so, you know, I would take care of them. And I would say, Granddaddy, let me, you know, let me go get you some groceries. He'd say, no, I want to go with you. I want to help you. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord, I don't have time for him to help me. <laughs> and so we'd go to, um, well, I don't guess we have Kroger, but we'd go to Kroger. That was our grocery store, and we'd... We'd go to Kroger and we'd be, good night guys, we'd be in there for like three hours. And he'd be like, like granddaddy, give me the list. No, I'll help you. I'm just like, Lord Jesus, just come on right now. Just come, you know. And, but he just, he could barely sit down. And, you know, maybe some of you guys are there, but it's like getting up was a huge deal, getting out of a chair for him. I lived upstairs in the, kind of the, you know, the attic or sort of, you know, just upstairs with knee walls. And I never will forget, it's burned in my mind. I came down one night, about midnight, to get some water. And uh, Grandmommy and Granddaddy were at this age where they didn't, they had different, they had two different bedrooms, not because they didn't love each other, but they slept better like that. And Grandmommy's bedroom was over here, and Granddaddy was over here. And I came out, I, I came down the stairs, and I stepped into this little hallway. There's a bathroom right here, and I turned right. And then I was going to make another right to go toward the kitchen. And Granddaddy's door was, was cracked open about two inches. And as I went around the corner, I caught a glimpse, and I stopped, and I looked. And my Granddaddy was on his knees beside his bed. Talking to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, men, that image is burned in my mind. And I don't think he knew that I was in the tent with him right then, but I was. And I learned that. And I had no idea that God was going to call me out of engineering and out of the paper mill industry. And I had no idea. But God was teaching me that before I'll ever lead anybody out and back in, I better go myself. And I better pursue the Lord. And I better have the right perspective of myself and the glory of God. As we were praying up here a minute ago with Todd and Chris and Nick. And Brother Nick, you guys can come on up. I was thinking about this young man that I've been texting. He's decided to throw his wife away. And he's decided that he loves another woman. And I've been texting him, and I, it's, you know, I hate text. That's the worst venue in the world to talk about something like that. But he won't meet with me, and he won't take my calls. He'll text me. And so, 
I've been texting him and I've been telling him about the gospel and I've been telling him about this Savior that will never throw us away. And I've been telling him about his commitment to his wife is, is till death do us part. And I've been talking to him about covenants and I've been talking to him about a biblical definition of love and that it's, a, it's a way more volitional than emotional and that it's, it's a decision and it's an act of the will. And, and I've been telling him that... that that the way he loves his wife should be like Jesus hanging on the cross. And, and this is what he said to me, guys. I understand that when I said I do, what it meant. And this isn't something that was, was or is easy. And then he said this. But I also don't feel that God intends for us to be unhappy. And to feel unwanted and to feel unappreciated. Happiness isn't everything in this life, but it is something. And it's what I would be giving up if I stayed with my wife. And I was thinking right here as we was praying, man, I don't know if I should share that or not. I mean, these guys don't know this couple, but... And then Chris Eller when it was his turn to pray, and I was thinking about this, and he began to pray, and he said, Lord, I'm praying for the man in this room tonight that's considering quitting on his wife. And I don't know what you're dealing with, but we're all in a battle, aren't we?